0: To
1: in some ways, I feel like there were two igniting moments for this project. The first was when I found the essay by Josephine in 2009, and the second was a conversation that you and I had in 2014. This is Jennifer Rosenfeld, and you're listening to part four of the White Rose podcast. I'm speaking with Julia Levitin, who was my high school best friend. And for 10 years, she was also my business partner in the two companies that we co-founded in the performing arts. She's also known me since I was 13 and has been either a participant or a witness in all of the major and minor events in my artistic journey.
2: So why did our high school music teacher stop you in the middle of the hallway and just tell you to write a song? How did that happen? I was really caught off guard
1: and he wouldn't give me a lot of help or guidance, which I think was part of his way of being a teacher to me. But it was really frustrating at the time. Eventually, after a few days where I was just asking him, I don't know how to do this. He said, why don't you find a poem that you like and start with that? And immediately I knew what poem to use. It was this one that I'd found for my seventh grade poetry anthology,
2: The Path That Leads to Nowhere. And I wrote the piece and I really liked writing it. I didn't realize you already knew like the moment he told you that you knew the poem. That's that's pretty fascinating. It's like the answer was sitting inside of you. You just d- didn't know you had access to it yet. I remember the experience, you telling me about this whole uh, situation of you now writing a piece and not knowing what was happening. But I also remember the piece and it was incredible. And we got to sing it. Well, he made me
1: conduct it, which I was also really nervous about because... I also didn't know anything about conducting, so he taught me one really basic move. It was really cool. I was so grateful for the opportunity, and I think the main thing was I was shocked by how I loved just writing the piece. It brought out this weird—I'm not a detail-oriented person in most areas of my life, but writing music brought out this like very obsessive, detail-oriented part of me where— I remember we had a practice room at our high school at Marlborough and I would go there anytime I had a few minutes between classes or whenever. And I would just always be like, oh my God, I can't believe time's up and I have to go to class because I could stay in here so much longer. And I don't, I guess they call that the flow state. I definitely had not heard of the flow state when I was 17, but it just felt like the first thing that I found where I could do that for
2: infinite amounts of time. I think in a way there's kind of a through line between the path that leads to nowhere and the text of it, and in some ways, White Rose and, and the themes that you've created there in terms of the, the topics and, and kind of some of the human elements explored. So I, I guess, what is it about the path that leads to nowhere, the text that that drew you in and what does it mean to you? One of the interesting things
1: about that poem is that it's written by Teddy Roosevelt's sister. And that's something that has sort of become more interesting to me with time. Also, with regards to this project, because um, I sort of think the idea of like sisters of famous brothers is kind of an interesting thing, and it's very much like a Josephine Pasternak kind of vibe. And I think there's a little bit of a Hans and Sophie flavor in there, and some kind of a different way. What I liked about that poem is that in some ways it's very beautiful descriptions of nature, but towards the end of it, the last stanza, it says, all the ways that lead to somewhere echo with the hurrying feet of the struggling and the striving, but the way I find so sweet bids me dream and bids me linger. Joy and beauty are its goal. On the path that leads to nowhere, I have sometimes found my soul. speaks to me. Um, I feel like it describes my life in a lot of ways. Finding myself in a separate direction from where a lot of people are and finding joy and happiness in that. And it has its challenges, but um, yeah, I I love that. And I love that it's it sort of catches you by surprise at the end because you think this poem is just gonna be about marigolds
2: amid the marshes and that kind of a thing? What I think is just so fascinating about White Rose is how beautifully it opens the conversation of meaning and and really how we how we create meaning in our lives. Not necessarily how we find it, but how we create it, how we choose the meaning and how we choose to actively pursue the things that matter in in our time. There's one sentence in the finale that I just find so powerful. They expose themselves unarmed to persecution for the sole purpose of testifying to the truth. And I think it just brings up the question of, of truth and what is truth and how do we, Develop for me so much of what white rose and and at least your expression of it speaks to is is how when we see the truth kind of what you just said it's like when you when you see it you know it when you see something that resonates with you you can feel it and I think most people are that way they may not know the signs within themselves they may not be used to listening but it's so when you hear something that resonates as truth what do you choose to do with it, and what a powerful example that this story is so I, I guess I'm just curious you know what what is it about white rose that 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 to you is important to share right now, and what, what is it what's the message that you get from from what you what you've learned about these characters? I remember when I was studying Dr. Shivago, which you know I did my honors thesis on
1: one of the themes and one of the quotes that Boris Pasternak wrote, I think it was said by the character of Yuri Zhivago, who in some ways was a stand-in for himself, he said something like, here's the exact quote. The great majority of us are required to live a life of constant, systematic duplicity. Your health is bound to be affected if, day after day, you say the opposite of what you feel, if you grovel before what you dislike and rejoice at what brings you nothing but misfortune. Our nervous system isn't just a fiction, it's a part of our physical body, and our soul exists in space and is inside us, like the teeth in our mouth. It can't be forever violated with impunity. He was speaking about how being in that society, it takes place in Soviet Russia around the time of the revolution, so this is, I think it's sort of set in the 1920s, but at different time periods, where there were sort of these slogans that everyone was supposed to say and proclaim triumphantly, like the dawn of a new tomorrow or whatever. And he just talked about how there was this pressure to to be unanimous in all things and that it was so destroying um, on the inside of what it meant to be a person, especially for him as a doctor, as a poet, all of these things. And so that really stuck with me. Yes, there's a cost to speaking out, like the members of the White Rose, but there's also a cost to living essentially a lie, like accepting everything around you as if it's okay and normal when it really isn't. I just think that whole period of Nazi Germany is so fascinating because, you know, the whole question of why did this happen? How could so many people allow this dictator to take over and totally transform what their society was from something that was decently normal for that time, progressive and, you know, pluralistic to one of the models of genocide. How could that happen? We probably all think that we are better than that, that it would never happen on our watch, that we are not the sort of people who would allow that. But in some ways, I think that's really an arrogant thing. It's easy to say we never would, but people are so easily manipulated and so easily convinced to support something horrible because it comes in a nice package and seems well justified. You know, that happened in Soviet Russia, that happened in Nazi Germany, where all these incredibly smart people went along with something absolutely horrible. Then you have these six individuals who didn't. And How did that happen? I think something too is today in America, in some ways it's easy to become an activist and we sort of get our badge of honor for posting something on social media and we feel good about ourselves. It's something that people can do very thoughtlessly because the idea or the cause is so well vetted by everyone around you that it doesn't take a lot of thinking to decide, am I going to make a post in support of this cause sure, why not? It's clearly a socially acceptable and morally good thing to do. Whereas when you think about the White Rose, there was no social validation for what they were doing. It didn't come from nowhere within them. It seems like in in all cases, for each of the five students involved, they came from families and sort of had exposure to experiences, people, ideas that were a bit out of the norm. Um, Certain ideas from the past hadn't been pulled out of their consciousness as had been the case for so many Germans with, you know, books being banned and the level of propaganda. So they, they had a different consciousness and they were unable to just sort of hold that inside and be like, yeah, I think differently from everyone else, but I'm just going to pretend otherwise and get through this thing until we're on the other side of it and I can have the life that I want to have. They all had that option, but they couldn't they couldn't do it.
2: What is it that they had that other people didn't have in not only seeing what was what was truth, perhaps for the time, but also being willing to act in spite of their probably present fears?
1: I was talking to one of my professors about this, where I asked her, "Did they think this through?" And she said, "Well, in some ways, no, because." They were young people who died needlessly before they had really accomplished anything in life. And how can we recommend that? Like, I would never tell a 20-year-old to follow in their footsteps. It's not the kind of advice you give to someone. The way that I think about it is, I don't think that they behaved foolishly or rashly. That's my opinion. I think in some ways there was this almost spiritual crisis When I think of like Hans Scholl, this is sort of how I would express it. Why would I be born now in this time in human history with the information that I have, with the way of looking at the world, if I weren't meant to do something? Which I think is a really interesting, in some ways, thinking very grandly about one's purpose and reason for being, but it's also an enormous burden to bear. That no one asked him to, but I see it as sort of like the inevitability of their position in many ways. they were very privileged. they came from good families they very loving families, they had all their needs met they weren't they were Germans, so they weren't persecuted so it's sort of like they had the lack of struggle in life and the awareness how could I have come from all of this and not do something with it. That's sort of my guess. I don't know, but that's sort of what I think might have happened. Is that how you feel? I have felt that way. Um, I felt that way a lot when I was younger, this sort of burden, because I've always had a relatively easy and comfortable life to do something bigger with that. And I remember even feeling that as like a teenager of like, I, it's such a waste that I haven't accomplished things on par with people I know who are in their fifties and sixties. <laughs> so um, yeah, I related to that a lot and I, I think I'm trying to, to calm it down a little bit, but in my earlier years, certainly in my early twenties too, it sort of felt like the weight of the world and why haven't I accomplished more even though I've barely been alive <laughs> for
2: any real amount of time. <laughs> Maybe you have felt that too. <laughs> I so relate to that. Oh my gosh. It's. I think as I get older, I feel less of that pressure, but not because I've accomplished more. I think. I think it's just because I kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, I have a deeper respect for the power of creation and the fact that we can create in a moment's notice. We don't need, I remember when I was little, I kind of felt this, I had this constantly this thought that I, this lifetime is not enough for all the things I need to do. And it's like I'm 12, but you know, 90 more years is not enough for me. I need more. And I'm already stressed about running out of time. So in some ways, I think it gets easier as you create and you realize, okay, I don't need 90 years to do something.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, it's just, I, I mean, I feel very similarly. And I also think there is a lot of goodness in finding your unique path, which also does not have to include literally everything. But I think the big driver for why I went to law school and sort of pushed myself down that path is because I thought it was going to be an avenue to what I thought was the most good thing I could do. And it proved to be not the path for me. But, you know, something I just want to say that's been interesting for me in working on this is I have spent a lot of time with Josephine Pasternak and her materials, which she wrote in her 50s and her 60s. This was a woman of tremendous intelligence and thoughtfulness who, it seems like, missed a lot of opportunities to be fully expressed to fulfill her potential. She wrote about that a lot in her memoir of, like, I wish I had gone down this path, but I only discovered it when I was much too late. And That theme comes up many times. Plus, she was sort of in some ways in the shadow of a very famous brother, a very famous father, and also caught at the crosshairs of fleeing the Russian Revolution and then the Nazis, and you know, a lot of personal world drama. And then there is Sophie Scholl, on the other hand, who died at age 21. And I've read so many of her letters in journals and journals. And of course, one could comment that these are not very sophisticated pieces, but I mean they're the private writings of someone in her early 20s but there's just so much enthusiasm for life and for wanting to create things and do music and express herself and in some ways I'm, I'm sort of in the middle age-wise and a huge part of what I've gained from this experience is getting to have a taste of creative fulfillment that I was missing but Whereas I feel like maybe Josephine and Sophie never got to realize it. I feel like because of them, I am. And that's really something that I'm so grateful for.
2: You shared with me that there were kind of These two moments of activation, and I love that word because I feel like, you know, whenever something magical, whenever some kind of new concoction, new chemical reaction takes place, I just remember a few things from AP chemistry, but one of them is uh, the activation energy necessary for any kind of chemical reaction to take place. And I found it so fascinating that you needed a certain kind of load for things to even happen. Even if you had all the right things in the bottle, it wouldn't happen unless you hit that point. So for you, there were two moments that kind of activated this whole combustible uh, (laughs) set of elements that led to this point that I think we're at now, which isn't even, um, I think there there are more activations to come that I'm excited about learning about. But the first of them was actually finding Josephine's essay in 2009. I actually remember you telling me when you found it uh, shortly afterwards and and just how fascinated you were by this one essay by someone I'd never heard of. Um, I mean, she was a sister of someone I had heard of, but still, it was just sort of this kind of, a, you were a little bit obsessed with it at the time. And, you know, what was, a, what was it about it that you found so compelling and how did you even find it?
1: Well, I was writing my honors thesis on Dr. Zhivago and Um, I was pretty early on in the process. We were very fortunate at Stanford to have the Pasternak family papers in the Hoover archives. So not that I am any real sort of researcher or I don't know, maybe I am more so now, but I think there is an element that's kind of like a treasure hunt where you're hoping I want to find something that no one else has found or no one else has thought was important before so that I can say something novel and sort of surprise and delight people with something that they don't know about. And so I would just go to the archives and look through everything. And the truth is, I I didn't find anything that I used in my honors thesis. Um, But I found this essay by Josephine Pasternak about the White Rose. And there were a few things that really struck me about it. One was that it was never published. And that broke my heart a little bit because she really tried. And it was really important to her that someone take up this case. And I remember in one of her letters to someone who was, um, she was sort of, it's, it's interesting, Julia, because in this letter, she's like making this heartfelt plea asking this professor to help her. And it reminds me so much of so many of the emails that I've sent over the last year, but also over the course of our business history of like, I know what it's like to send a vulnerable request to someone where You know, if they don't say yes, I'll live. But, like, I really want and need them to say yes. So I just, I felt for her, even though I hadn't experienced all of that when I first read that letter. But she says...
2: Now, I am an unknown person. My name does not compel people to listen to me, nor editors to publish what I have written. Otherwise, I would have written an in-memoriam article and need not have bothered other people.
1: And there's a part of me that was like, oh, that's so sad,
2: because your brother is really famous and, (laughs) (laughs) you know. (laughs) Was he famous at the time that she wrote this? um,
1: I mean, maybe he wasn't. Actually, that's a good point. He perhaps was not worldwide famous because this was before, a few years before Dr. Zhivago came out, but he was still very famous in Russia. But she wrote this in English and she was emailing. Oh my gosh, I just said Josephine was emailing someone. An American professor. But I don't know. I mean, I think he was, the Soviet Union wanted to, wanted to promote him as one of their literary stars. So I think he was to some extent, but I just thought it was so sad where she's like, I'm a nobody. And again, I just felt like, oh, I'm, I've so been there. I am there, you know, to know there's no reason why you should help me or listen to me. I, my name doesn't mean anything to you. But so that just the sincerity of her desire to get it out there and it being unfulfilled, I just sort of felt a sense of obligation to her because I also felt like it's not like anyone is going through these files. It was just sort of a total random coincidence that I happened to be going through them. I don't remember the date of the last time someone had even opened them up, but I'm sure it had been a really long time. I don't know if anyone has looked since, but to find something where it meant something to me and I didn't think it would mean something to that extent, to literally any other person on the planet was really spooky, but really special. So it felt like a life-changing discovery that I didn't know what to do with at that moment. I didn't have a place for it in my life at the moment that
2: I, I saved it for when when I would be ready. And I remember that, that kind of letter, you wrote a letter kind of like that to... What, what member of the family was it that you reached out to? You reached out to... Well, I, um,
1: this was at the beginning of 2020. I wrote this sort of long plea to her son. I somehow remembered which archivist I needed to reach out to. Um, because you're, when I was in grad school, I, went with my pro- I told my professor about this essay, and he walked me over to the archives and said, you need to talk to this woman. She's the archivist who deals with the Pasternak family. And that was like 2013, 2014, maybe. And um, I never got in touch with her then, but in 2020, I reached out and I said, here's what I want to do. So I wrote this long letter to Josephine's son asking for permission to use her essay in my musical. (laughs) He wrote back and basically said, you know, frankly, I think it's a bizarre idea to write a musical about such a tragic topic. And my mother would feel similarly. But sure, you can use her materials. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so Here's the thing. It's like you don't get to choose your, your publisher. I, at least I guess Josephine doesn't. And so um, <laughs> here we are. It's going to be a
2: musical. <laughs> Who knew that in addition to being a composer, a creative force in a hundred different ways, you are also now a publisher of uh, this, this woman's discovery in some ways. It's not even just her perspective. It's, it's something that in a way she kind of discovered similar to, to you, right? This whole story. Well, I think she
1: wrote about the White Rose before there was really any information about it, which I think is pretty remarkable because now there's a lot. Here was the other really spooky thing that I should have mentioned. She knew two of the people in the White Rose by total random coincidence So, And she didn't know that they knew each other. So in 1943, at that point, she was living in England. She's listening to the radio. You know, it's the middle of the war. And she hears this broadcast saying that, you know, Alexander Schmorell and Kurt Huber were executed for treason as part of the White Rose. And she's like, wait, I know both of them. And I didn't know that they knew each other. And they were just executed for some kind of you know, Nazi resistance thing. So I just thought that was so crazy. I had learned about the White Rose before. I thought it was a fascinating moment in history, but then it was kind of like going from them as historical figures to me being just a few degrees of separation from them. Because, you know, my professor knew the Pasternak family and had met Josephine
2: and she knew two of them. Why do you feel like it took so much for you to give yourself permission to create this work, that in some ways it there was some sense that this was something that was meant to be from the start.
1: Well, back to your chemistry metaphor, I feel like this is like the slowest chemical reaction that has ever happened in history. So um, <laughs> it's like a very long study. I mean, I think a big part of it was I felt so pulled to music and the arts from a young age, and then I pushed myself away from it. Um, in college, or I pushed the arts away from me, or at least I tried. In part because I felt like it was frivolous. Um, after I wrote the path that leads to nowhere, I sort of had this moment of: it's not right for a person to have this much fun. It just, it just doesn't feel right. <laughs> um, so, I, and and I was like, let's be honest, I'm not some great talent. I'm not Beethoven over here or anything. The world does not. Need my music in order to spin around the sun and all of that. And then when I was in college, as you know, I had some sort of confidence debilitating experiences with regards to my piano experience, which really made me question maybe I never was as good as I thought I was and everything that I. Thought about myself as a musician was probably false, and I could still do music, but I couldn't have any confidence in it. That just seemed like I'd lost the right to have confidence in my voice. And then, you know, us starting our business journey, in part, actually, by because of learning about the White Rose in Russian literature, I felt like there is good to be done in supporting artists. Like artists in society should exist. And I mean, obviously, I don't deserve to be one of them, but it's a worthy cause to support the real ones. So that sort of helped me justify what we went on to do. But I always just saw myself from the age of 18 and on as like, there are the artists and there is me. And I'm fortunate to sort of be graced by their presence and do what I can around them. But I don't have what it takes to join. It's so funny because, you know, I could be with any other person and hear these thoughts and statements and be like, you don't need a music degree to write music. Just write music. You have a voice that's worthy of being heard. Just go express yourself. But for me, it was just always really, really hard to get to that place. So there was the confidence issue. There was really a skill gap issue. And I've spent many years filling that in. And then I think there's sort of a creative process issue where I spent many years sort of kind of
2: like bewildered. How do I even start? I literally have no idea. And there was a conversation that we had in 2014 that you told me kind of just shifted that inside of yourself somehow. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So we had a phone call and you were sort of asking me these questions, kind of
1: inviting me to go in a completely undirected path in my own thinking. And that was the first time I acknowledged that my artistic side felt dormant and neglected and I didn't like that it didn't feel good and it was something that I really missed and just acknowledging that to you it also was very clear what I needed to work on if I wanted to reawaken that part of myself and it was this project so from that point, I started taking very small action steps. The first step I took, which felt so ridiculous, and I almost, I think you know this, I almost chickened out and didn't do it at all. I was in business school at the time, and there was an independent study program where you could you know, get a professor to supervise you doing whatever, literally, because I found a professor who would be my advisor as I
2: worked on this musical in business school. Wait, and I wanted to slow that down for a second, because... This is like the best one of the best examples I can think of of just this idea of you know you can you can eke out a space for yourself on this planet or you can literally bend the planet around your own desires and and dreams, and I think this is such a powerful example of you perhaps you know with some skepticism and trepidation, but but very ultimately successfully bending the world literally the stanford business school around your your finger of this is something i want to do and i have this space to do it in and what if i try
1: yeah i received academic credit for working on my musical in business school i did it with this professor he basically let me set my own parameters he's like what are you going to commit to so i said i'll write 10 scenes he said great so i wrote the scenes i received zero feedback which is why I think he maybe didn't read it. Or maybe he knew, let me give him more credit because he's a very nice guy. Maybe he knew that it was the stage of writing where you just need to generate stuff that you then throw out and then move on to stuff that's of higher quality, which is basically what I did. I I completed the scenes and I never looked at them again. When did you decide to commit to making this happen? I think it was in the fall of 2016 where I I hadn't touched any of it since that independent study experience. And I just felt like, am I doing this or am I not? And I realized that I had tremendous fear and resistance to writing music because I had so much of my own music baggage. And I just realized it's not like I'm getting this done using the current strategy. It's not really working. And I knew I had a lot of fear around writing music and I knew I couldn't do it alone. And I didn't feel like I was worthy or ready of taking composition lessons. There was this this woman, Ellen McSweeney. I didn't know her super well, but she was a musician and a songwriter. I needed someone to very gently and kindly hold my hand as I took the most baby steps of writing music. And so I worked with her for a few months and she helped me do that. And I remember sharing my first sketches of songs and just feeling so profoundly embarrassed of them. But then... I came across the, there was this songwriting program, the Johnny Mercer program, and you had to have three songs to submit. And I was coming up on, I guess my 30th birthday, which is the age cutoff. So I told her I'd really like to be able to enter this program and I needed to have three songs. So I wrote the songs and she's like, well, how are you going to record them? I don't know. She's like, don't you have all these music friends? So I think that was sort of my first big ask. I asked three of my friends from the Stanford Chamber Chorale if they would help me with my songs. And I was so mortified to ask, but they did an amazing job. It was really the first time since Marlboro that I heard people bring my music to life. And at that time, I barely knew how to notate music. My scores were a disaster, but I had my friend, Eric Tuan, who's a musical genius on the piano, who basically took my very pathetic score and made it sound like Jason Robert Brown level and great singers. And it was just, it's like intoxicating to hear people who really want to do a good job in bringing your music to life. It was so cool. What you're about to hear is the very first song I ever wrote for this project. It was a song for Sophie. At the time it was called Play. I've since rewritten and changed it, but a version of it still is in the show. And as much as this is about Sophie's moment of finally getting to pursue her dreams, it was kind of also about me and the very same thing as I was getting started writing the musical. You'll hear my friends Eric Twan on piano and Aruna McColey is the fantastic singer. I still love listening to this recording. It was very inspiring to me as I eventually fleshed out the arrangement of this. I didn't get into the songwriting program, but I remember feeling so proud of myself for getting that rejection. I was like, oh, real artists get rejected. This is so cool. (laughs) I earned
2: that rejection.
1: I earned it. Yeah. It actually felt really good. I didn't feel
2: sad at all. It just felt like a win to receive that. Major shout outs to the creativity professor, to Ellen and to Eric for kind of setting the stage for this
0: nightmare is over. I don't work for them anymore. For two years I was trapped and I couldn't adapt to their story of what I am for. My mind is full of ideas of all the things I've been meaning to write. I will study all day. It will all feel like play. I can finally live A strange girl who watches and waits Now is my time to show what I'm made of So don't underestimate me Just wait till I have my degree
2: Given that you didn't have a crystal ball for what the future would hold, but now we're in a world that is dramatically more complex than it was when you started on this journey. We are really being called all of us in various ways to find our truth in a way that I think was not so questionable before. It didn't seem so urgent. What is your message with this? What, 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 are, you, what are you hoping people take away?
1: Well, part of what has been comforting to me, and I'm not saying that I believe everyone should believe this, but it's what has been comforting to me is I believe there's more to existence than the material world. I really do feel like there were souls who were on this planet in human form many decades ago who died, but whose spirits are still present and i feel like they have reached out to me in some way that i can't explain and i feel like i've received this gift to share what they've given me for our world today and i am not looking to tell people what to make of it but just the fact that our existence potentially reverberates long after we are gone from the material world is something that's comforting to me because if we see that there's a bigger picture and we don't fear the ultimate end of death, then, you know, there's really nothing else to fear. All other fears are so silly, you know, like what will people think of me? Or will people on Twitter like attack me? There are terrible ills in our world, but in many ways to choose to live with joy and to not be afraid and to trust that the radiating of our being is potentially much bigger than what we are experiencing or offering right now. I don't know. That that's something that means a lot to me in ways that are obviously hard to explain. I think that's sort of one of the big challenges with telling a story like this in that there's no happy ending. Like there's no no matter how you swing it, the ending is incredibly tragic. And what do we do with that beyond just cry and feel grateful to feel some degree of connection with these remarkable people? There's one other thing that I think about a lot, which is something that Sophie would talk about, and it's echoed in Hans's letters too. She would always say, she would write this in many of her letters, that one must have a hard mind and a soft heart. And that's something that I try to take in a lot because what she's speaking about is we need to be intellectually rigorous. And really try to understand and not go with the first source of information, really dig deeper and push ourselves in our thinking, but to also not let that make us harsh towards other people or reject them or put them down or belittle anyone else. So holding that balance is I think really difficult because in some ways these two things can be intention. Yeah, that's, that's sort of a practical takeaway for me that I try to use. You know, it's really interesting because there are translations of the interrogation transcripts of all the members of the White Rose and even their trials. It's not a moment for for any kind of glory. You know, they never were thinking about like, oh, people are going to read my interrogation transcript one day. It's a very private thing and it's so fascinating to see how they behaved and how For instance, Sophie, the interrogators and the judge, they were trying to get her to claim that she wasn't that involved so that she could just scoot on out and be like, oh, my brother made me do it. I didn't want to do any of this. But she kept saying, no, I knew exactly what I was doing. I stand by what we did. You guys are the cowards because you can't recognize reality. For others, when given the chance to sort of make their final statements, like Alexander Schmorell and Kurt Huber, they wrote these long essays on what they believed the proper form of government would be or what Germany should be doing and why they did what they did. So like, they used every moment to speak their truth and to say what mattered to them, regardless of the outcome. And I believe that there is some level of satisfaction in that, of knowing that in the final worst moment, being faced with Hitler's most terrifying judge and knowing that you're going to die and your family is probably going to suffer tremendously. To still not hold back and to be truthful and honest, I think that's really admirable because being truthful and honest is really difficult. And in some ways, we have no reason not to be in our current society. I mean, Hopefully that will continue to be the case, but there are so many areas of of life where it's just easier to not be totally honest and ourselves. And um, I think that's actually a really noble thing to
2: work towards. I want to kind of close out our conversation with just really looking at your decision to Let your voice be heard through this musical and not just in terms of your writing, but in terms of your actual voice and getting, choosing and allowing in some ways yourself to be a part of this from, from that perspective. And I want to just explore once you decided to let your voice be a part of it, what happened? Mm. Well, it all, it again, like everything else, it
1: happened in phases, but it all started in, August of 2020 when um, two of the coaches that I work with on the sort of creative development, Susan Blackwell and Laura Kamian, they were getting to know me and this material. And I think at one point Susan said, have you thought about making yourself a character in this show? And I said, no, 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 definitely not. However, it would solve some problems. Mm -hmm. That was sort of how I phrased it. And I think I had had the thought of like certain things would be easier if I could just be there to sort of make some connections because part of what this show has become is like a weird entry into my brain where certain things make sense, but they might not outside of my brain. So that kind of opened the door to in some ways a dramatic device of how do I tell this story linking together these disparate things of like Josephine Pasternak and the White Rose and all of that. I fought a lot of battles with it. Not only do I have all my insecurities of like how good I am as a musician and writer and whatever, then it also became, I'm writing about significant historical figures. How dare I put myself next to them? That just seems so wrong. So it was sort of a coming around to... I don't know, maybe my story is somewhat worthwhile. And I have to say, someone who's been really helpful to me in that regard is Elkana Pulitzer, who is a long-term client that we've both worked with. A huge part of this story over the last 12 months has been how the business adventures you and I had together and the networks and communities we built— ended up being the life raft that's gotten me through this year. And a lot of the co-sailors in this ship have really come from this world. And that's been so intimidating to me because you and I have worked with really accomplished professional artists. The best. The best of the best. And my whole insecurity is there are the real artists and then there's Jennifer's Amateur Hour. So in many ways, it's been very intimidating but also very healing and very eye-opening to have someone like Elkana who's you know advised me and helped me with a lot of the sort of big picture to basically say no your your story's interesting there's something about this that is interesting (laughs) and worth telling there are so many people who have been part of our world who are part of this project and you know, have been involved in various ways. Marin Montalbano was the first one. Nicole Mueller recorded a lot of harp in the early part of the year when I was recording it remotely. And Nathan Cole did the violin. Angela Parrish was helping me with a lot of things. Every step of like, okay, I'm going to write myself into it creates this whole inner drama. And then, okay, I'm going to sing on the album. I have so many insecurities about singing, but I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to play the piano for it. So many insecurities about that. But in many ways, just choosing to do it and it being okay. And also, in some ways, allowing myself to perceive what I have performed as the producer of this and the writer and not just as the performer. And to recognize it's not all about who can play the fastest or who can sing the highest or who has the most even voice it's about communicating something authentic and i can offer that cuz this is my story and my life has been all about this for many years so it's been very permission giving and
2: challenging but awesome i mean it's it's been the greatest you wrote this and and it's something that you're so close to creating but you also are playing on it you're singing you are speaking as part of it and, and and so it's it's your voice in in so many different dimensions and different layers and I I do believe that there is something special about the resonance that's created through that kind of interaction that nobody else could have done in any of these layers if it weren't for you so I think it's 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 so cool that you are willing to be to put yourself on the line in some ways and be vulnerable in all these different ways to allow that to come together.
1: Well, you know, it's my project, so I can't get fired from it, which is amazing. And <laughs> when we were gonna record the instrumental, just as an example, I had been working with a fabulous pianist who was recording an earlier version. I reached out to him to record live when we did all of it, and he wasn't available. And I thought this could be one of the few chances in my life to play with musicians at this level. I might never have this opportunity again. And then other Jennifer dialogue was like, well, you created this. You could create another opportunity. It might be a few years. But I was very, very panicked about doing it. But it was also, it's mine for the taking. If I want to do it, it's my choice. I can. And Having so many moments like that where it's one of the gifts of creating the project, you can sort of find as many hats for yourself as you want and I feel like I've really done that and it's been so wonderful to to get to do that.
2: I think it's just such a great Great story because in so many ways you are embodying the story that you're telling. You are you're you're living it. You're you're making the choices to live out loud in ways that are meaningful and resonant for you. Is there anything else that you think will allow people to experience it more potently? So many of the things that I've read about the White Rose say, we don't know why they called it the White
1: Rose. Just maybe about a month ago, I ordered this translation of something. And on the back of it, there was this letter. This letter was received by a friend of Alexander Schmorel's, and he wrote it down and copied it to show to Hans. This is Ruth Hannah Sachs's translation of this letter, which reads, Yesterday, late in the evening, I spied a white rose. It is said that white flowers are for the dead, but death, love, and youth are all one and the same. The dead, insofar as they really live inside of us, live transformed as the image of shining youth. Therefore, it is precisely the white rose with its fragrance and its fragile purity that is the symbol of eternal youth." This eternal thing that represents life and death and the whole essence of a plant is that it carries the past, present, and future in it. So a plant's existence is to be pollinated and for its seed to be carried forward so that it continues to live on in its own way. That's sort of what I think about when I think about the white rose, is it bloomed and had a short life in its time, but there are those of us who have been inspired by it and we're sort of like the pollinators, the little bees that carry it forward. Josephine had an awareness of this, too, as she wrote in her letter to Professor John Neff. In centuries to come, the unbelievable Munich case will
0: be dug up. It will be duly examined, explored, and will become the theme of a novel or a play. It will become a work of
2: art, or, at the worst, a bestseller.
1: The other weird thing is... You know, The Path That Leads to Nowhere, it was written by Corinne Roosevelt Robinson. So she was a Roosevelt, which means field of roses. And I married a Rosenfeld, which also means field of roses. In some ways, I feel like this, the white rose has led to the blooming of many, many other roses in in its inspiration, but also in my life. I've received so, so many gifts from this experience in relationships and in knowledge and information. So many people have helped me. I've learned so much and I've had the opportunity to become more of the person that I want to be and to do the things that I've always wanted to do. So that's sort of my main takeaway from all of this is this one rose leads to the blooming of a whole field. I feel like I've received all of it as a gift.